George Washington, the father of our country, was a great general, statesman, and president. But did he also have a keen insight of infectious disease? And did he use this insight to help win the Revolutionary War? Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. We will explore this topic with Dr. Elizabeth Fenn, author of Pox Americana. Dr. Fenn, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. How did you become interested in smallpox during the era of the Revolutionary War? Well, I had actually encountered this uh, smallpox epidemic when I was an undergraduate at Duke University writing an honors thesis on the Hudson Bay fur trade, and I became aware of what I thought was a small smallpox epidemic that uh, hit the plains of, of Western Canada. Uh, and then I later decided to return to graduate school and write the dissertation that became the book Pox Americana. And in the process of doing my preliminary research, I discovered that, lo and behold, this epidemic had uh, struck the entire continent. In fact, it struck South America as well. Uh, and it had profoundly shaped the American Revolution and the fighting in, in the Revolutionary War. So what was George Washington's personal experience with smallpox? Well, that is an interesting story. Uh, in 1751, when Washington was, I believe, 19 years old, he actually took a trip to the island of Barbados with his older half-brother, Lawrence. And interestingly, the reason for their trip was to alleviate Lawrence's persistent cough and congested lungs, which were symptoms of the consumption or the, the tuberculosis that would eventually kill Lawrence. And it was believed at the time that uh, change of climate would alleviate the symptoms of consumption. Um, so they went to Barbados, and ironically, it was then George who fell ill. Uh, he, he contracted smallpox after having dinner with a family that had been in, infected with smallpox, and uh, he was basically bedridden for a month. He was an assiduous diarist. He, he kept a diary religiously, and he did not uh, write a single journal entry while he was sick. Um, it took him most of a month to, you know, he obviously he lived through the disease. Um, but uh, the larger point for American history is that Washington had firsthand hard experience with this infection. So when General Washington took command of the Revolutionary Army in 1775, what was happening with regard to smallpox in New England at the time? Well, that's an interesting story because smallpox was becoming epidemic in the city of Boston. Uh, and so, you know, Washington took charge of the Continental Army in the summer of 1775, and by this time, American troops had basically hemmed in the British in Boston. So this was known as the Siege of Boston. And uh, you know, so the, the American troops were surrounding Boston, and the British troops were trapped in the city of Boston. And smallpox became epidemic in Boston at this time, not necessarily infecting British troops, because many of the British troops were Europeans, and uh, smallpox was an endemic in Europe. Uh, so most, but not all, British soldiers had had exposure and had garnered immunity when they were young. But Washington was very worried that this epidemic might strike his own soldiers. And in America, smallpox was not endemic. Most people reached adulthood 
uh, without exposure to this disease, and as adults, they were quite vulnerable. So Washington was very worried that uh, his army could be, become infected with smallpox. In fact, some of the very first orders that he issued uh, after arriving at his headquarters in Cambridge uh, were about smallpox control, you know, insisting that any soldier showing the least symptoms of smallpox was to be quarantined immediately. So what was variolation? Variolation is an interesting uh, procedure. Uh, variolation, it was some, often called inoculation at the time, although it's kind of different from the inoculation we think of today. The variolation was the use of the variola virus, the smallpox virus, to create a milder case of the disease that would confer immunity um, and allow somebody to live the rest of their life without having to to worry about contracting smallpox. We actually uh, learned about this from uh, two sources, but one was Constantinople and the other was West Africa uh, when the, uh, the famous Puritan uh, minister, Cotton Mather, actually interviewed his slave, a man named Onesimus, um, a West African, and he asked, you know, a slave who had had smallpox was was more valuable than a slave who had not had smallpox because they wouldn't contract it and die. So Mather, and this is back in 17, oh, I want to say 1720, 17, I think 1720 or 21, um, Mather asked Onesimus, have you ever had smallpox? And Onesimus said to him, literally, he said yes and no. And he described a procedure in which his father, when he was a little boy, his father had uh, taken pustular matter from a, a case of smallpox and implanted it in an incision or a, a, an abrasion on Onesimus's hand or arm. Onesimus then came down with a mild case of smallpox, again, as a, as a, as a child in West Africa, comes down with a mild case of smallpox, lives through it, garners immunity, um, and is basically good to go. So Mather took note of this, uh, and this, this was variolation, um, the uh, sort of creation of, the, of, a, of a mild case of smallpox that uh, allows someone to garner immunity and uh, be invulnerable uh, for the rest of their lives. And it, w it was practiced amid some controversy in the uh, British colonies in North America. You're listening to ReachMD Book Club. We're speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Fenn about her book, Pox Americana. So for variolation, wasn't it banned in certain colonies? It was often banned uh, because, well, you know, sometimes, some people objected to it because they thought it was interfering with God's will uh, to artificially create immunity. But uh, the larger issue is that when you variolate somebody, they do come down with smallpox. It's a milder case, but they do come down with smallpox, and they can infect other people in what was called the natural way. So unless it was practiced under very strict quarantine, variolation was really as likely to start an epidemic as it was to stop one. Uh, and for this reason, it was very controversial and it was often banned except when an epidemic threatened, and then the bans would, would sometimes be lifted. So in the winter of 77-78, with all the troops at Valley Forge, we knew they were cold, we knew they were hungry. What did General Washington decide with regard to smallpox prevention for these troops? Well, Washington was very worried, believe it or not, about germ warfare. Although that the term is anachronistic, um, it's pre-germ theory, 
but uh, people understood contagion, and Washington, they understood smallpox, smallpox as a contagious disease very, very well. So Washington was worried about germ warfare, and not without reason. Uh, there had been some suggestions that the British may have actually tried to infect Washington's troops at Boston. So Washington decided to variolate his army. and So most of his army uh, at Valley Forge, those who were there, uh, underwent variolation, and it contributed to their misery, because when you are variolated, when you are inoculated, to use the 18th century term, you come down with a mild case of smallpox. And it's it's not pleasant. Even even a mild case is not pleasant. So Washington's troops were sick as well as cold and hungry that winter in Valley Forge. Yes, indeed they were. It, it certainly added to their misery. Um, now, they in the end garnered immunity, and that was a good thing. But uh, it, it was not a pleasant thing to go through. So how did this immunity that Washington suddenly helped convey to his troops help win the war? Well, it meant that his army was no longer vulnerable to smallpox. And to understand the implications of this, we'd be wise to revisit another campaign that took place in the winter of 75-76 while Washington was besieging Boston. Uh, Many people are unaware of the fact that there was an attempt to bring a 14th colony into the rebellion against Britain. You know, we typically think about the 13 colonies. But uh, the United States actually invaded Canada, and we tried to bring the uh, Quebec into the rebellion along with the uh, 13 colonies we're all familiar with. And what happened was that the American troops camped outside Quebec, besieging Quebec, uh, contracted smallpox, and it decimated them. And I don't use that word lightly. Uh, it decimated, you know, refers to one in ten. So it really more than decimated the American troops outside Quebec. Um, it riddled the army there. They were forced to retreat. It was a disastrous retreat. Soldiers in the full throes of smallpox, trudging through knee-deep snow, along others who had never had it, spreading the infection, being covered with with lice and maggots, dying in huge numbers, and it completely undermined that Canadian campaign. Uh, So Washington learned from that, and he didn't want that to happen again, uh, and it didn't happen again uh, after he variolated his army at Valley Forge, and I would add at some other uh, locations as well. It also seemed like it had a huge impact in the campaign through the South, that a lot of slaves had kind of left their plantations with a British promise of freedom, and they were very cruelly treated by smallpox. That is true. Yeah, it was uh, the smallpox epidemic of this era was really especially tragic and poignant uh, for African Americans in the South. And what happened was the British, uh, recognizing that my enemy's enemy is my friend, issued emancipation proclamations as they marched through the South. You know, we tend to think of the Emancipation Proclamation as something that was issued in 1863, but in fact uh, there had been earlier Emancipation Proclamations issued by the British offering freedom to slaves uh, belonging to rebellious uh, Americans um, if they would come and serve the British side. And thousands upon thousands of African Americans did so. But those African Americans, except for the 
those who had been born in Africa, those African Americans were no more likely to be immune to smallpox than European Americans were. And so when they clustered together following the British troops, uh, they contracted smallpox and suffered terribly from it. And then after the war, the smallpox really seemed to decimate kind of the indigenous folks of North America and really had impact kind of later, I guess, with settling the West. It did. Uh, you know, smallpox erupted in Mexico City in 1779, a part of this you know, sort of hemispheric uh, outbreak of, of the disease. It erupted in Mexico City in 1779 and spread, uh, spread northward um, into the Pimeria Alta, into Baja, California, then into uh, the, the San Diego and Los Angeles area, although those places not, had not been uh, named as such at the time or, or settled by Europeans at that time. Um, they also spread into Texas. It spread northward across the plains, eventually reaching uh, the Canadian Shield, the the plains of Western Canada, where I had originally encountered the epidemic. Um, the, the disease probably followed the Columbia River uh, westward to the Pacific and then spread up along the coastline uh, into southeast Alaska, just wreaking absolute havoc among Native peoples. It really seems like for all the various infectious agents that smallpox is very kind of intertwined with the history of America. It really is, especially in this early period. And there, you know, it's interesting because from a historian's perspective, it reveals the way people interacted because this is a virus that's contagious almost exclusively person to person. So you can map trade networks, you can map warfare, you can really map human interactions by way of this disease. Um, So, you know, for, for historians, it's there's a sort of a tragic opportunity embedded in it. And it also intersected with other big changes going on, like uh, changes in things like transportation, you know, changes that are relevant to our thinking today when it comes to the spread of infectious disease. Uh, for example, the horse and the use of the horse was relatively new to Native Americans, but it transformed mobility across the, the plains. And you can argue that that increased mobility then it helped to enable smallpox to spread among indigenous peoples. Likewise, the steamboat in the 19th century uh, enhanced mobility and also enhanced the spread of infectious disease. So many of the issues we deal with in the 18th century are very similar to issues we deal with today, say talking about SARS or H1N1, things like that. We were speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Fenn. Doctor, thank you so much for being on the show. The book is Pox Americana. Thank you. This is Dr. John Russell. You've been listening to ReachMD Book Club. To download this program or others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thanks again for listening.